Hello and uh, welcome to today's Zoom with Zarni. Today is Thursday, December 31st, New Year's Eve. Uh, with, uh, this is uh, the end of 2020. It is finally here. Uh, we're about to uh, embark on to 2021. And, uh, but, uh, you know, there's still some few hours left. Who knows what curves 2020 is going to bring to us. Um, but uh, I do know that 2021 is going to bring even more election law changes that, uh, that are, uh, are coming our way. And uh, this last week, we finally saw that the governor signed into law uh, automatic voter registration. That was a, a very good thing. Um, this will be a transformative change for New York elections. Uh, no longer will you have to opt in to registering to vote. You'll have to opt out not to. Um, and it will take a little time for this to get into effect. Uh, 2023 is when uh, this will go into effect. Uh, and because we have to have a couple of years to make sure that the DMV is ready to go, that state agencies are ready to go. Uh, some of the agencies may not come on board until 2024. Uh, so uh, right now, today, you're not going to see much changes. However, um, online voter registration uh, will happen sometime in the next year and a half um, as we're getting vendors to put those systems in place so we can register right at the boards of elections instead of just at the DMV. And then once that's in place, that will drive um, the engine, so to speak, of everything that we need to get automatic voter registration done. So um, it's a big thing. It's something that I personally fought for uh, for a couple of years. Um, and many advocates did in the Let New York Vote Coalition, uh, Democratic commissioners throughout the state uh, supporting automatic voter registration going back to 2017. Uh, so we are uh, um, on the verge of uh, changing this and becoming just the 14th or 15th state to do it. We're going to be on the vanguard instead of behind, uh, like many other states, uh, you know, usually are ahead of us, but we're going to actually be on the vanguard of that. So it's pretty exciting. Um, the Board of Elections, uh, you know, is on a holiday schedule right now. Uh, we're going back to work on, uh, on Monday, January 4th, although we've been at work, but many of us have been on vacation. And we'll start planning out uh, the the new year, including um, our schedules for training inspectors and all of that. That's, that's something that we're going to hopefully start bringing to you in the new year. Um, the political calendar still is not out. Donations limits, contribution limits will not be decided until April 1st. Uh, petitioning is still not decided what's going on with that. That's scheduled to start February 23rd. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I expect that when session comes back into uh, early next week, we will see uh, uh, some uh, changes to that um, to allow for petitioning in uh, COVID time. So uh, my interview today, um, and I'm going to get right to it because there's not much else to talk about, is my interview today is Perry Grossman, who is with the New York Civil Liberties Union. He's the senior uh, attorney for the Voting uh, Rights Project with them, and he um, is on the vanguard of uh, protecting the rights of votes, not just here in New York, but uh, throughout the country. He's, uh, he's uh, several 
cases that are on his um, docket that he's uh, working on, um, including the census uh, uh, case. And he's also one of the main authors and proponents of the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act of New York, uh, a, a another piece of legislation that we're hoping to see passed in um, in this session, we hope. So I, I found it, Perry's always great. This is his third time on the uh, program. So please enjoy this interview. And uh, I hope uh, that you also enjoyed. Yesterday, I dropped on my Wonky Wednesday, uh, which was dealing with early voting data and uh, what that was like for us uh, this in 2020. I think you'll find some interesting stuff there. And uh, I hope that you will, uh, you know, take a read that's on my Tumblr blog. If you, if you look for Dustin Zarni at Tumblr or go to our Facebook or my Twitter pages, they're all, you know, they're linked in there as well. All right. Uh, so without further ado, I give you my interview with Perry Grossman of the New York Civil Liberties Union and the Voting Rights Project. Uh, I'm very happy to read you. And welcome back. Uh, I'm very pleased to have my good friend, Perry Grossman, uh, who is the senior staff attorney of the Voting Rights Project for the New York Civil Liberties Union. Uh, he's got a huge caseload uh, and a lot of uh, um, interesting things coming up. So I'm always happy to have him back on. I think this is your third appearance now on Zoom and Zarni, right, Perry? It is. I'm feeling like a regular, like Steve Martin on Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Neither one of us get paid like right. Steve Martin on Saturday Night Live, though, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> but, uh, well, uh, you know, for those who maybe didn't catch the first couple of times you're on, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do at the New York Civil Liberties Union and uh, what is the Voting Rights Project? Sure. So I... Um... I am chiefly responsible for um, the voting rights docket, whether it's litigation, policy advocacy, um, and even some, some, some organizing of the voting rights work of the state of New York's ACLU affiliate, which is known as the New York Civil Liberties Union. Uh, it's the only ACLU affiliate that's known that way because I think we're the, the oldest and the biggest, and this is um, a historical thing. Um, but so I, I litigate voting rights cases in state and federal court, um, mostly here in New York, but I do a little bit uh, that's sort of nationally focused or even outside the state from time to time in conjunction with my colleagues at the National Voting Rights Project. Um, I do a lot of policy advocacy work, um, you know, working with other advocates around the state, uh, elected officials, um, administrators like, like yourself, uh, trying to get New York elections to work better. Uh, trying to make voting more accessible so that more people are able to exercise their right to vote and maintain their ownership stake in the state of New York. Um, and then we do some organizing work, and that's making sure that voters are well-educated and informed, um, that people are registered to vote, that people know uh, when and how to vote, and, and to make things as easy as possible. So that, that political participation mission is a core part of what we do uh, at NICLU and at the ACLU and its affiliates generally. Wonderful. And uh, yeah, I've had uh, my pleasure of working with you on several different projects. Uh, um, and, you know, I, I, I always find working with advocates 
who want to work with you as opposed to want to just yell at you is a, <laughs> a wonderful uh, thing. And also, I, I imagine on the other side is, you know, working with commissioners who want to work with you instead of just say no is something that you appreciate as well. And I think that's um, something that, uh, you know, I, I value and I value our friendship as well. Uh, you've been a wonderful uh, contact. Uh, you have a lot of interesting cases going on uh, that you are, um, that you are, are working on of, of national importance and also statewide importance. But uh, the last time uh, we had you on, we were talking a little bit about the Supreme Court, but the time before that, uh, you were on talking about uh, the the East Rap. <laughs> I always say this wrong. The East Ramapo Central School District. Yeah, that's the East Ramapo Central School District case, and um, you had just won a big victory on that. But as we know in the world of law, big victories are fleeting, if not delayed. What's going on with that case? So that that case, the victory is not fleeting, which is nice. Um, you know, there's still a lot of effort by the school district to try and slow down the victory. And they haven't been successful though, uh, thus far. So that case was argued uh, at the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit back in August. Um, the district tried to get the, the remedy, which is the implementation of a single member district system. So in, in East Ramapo is interesting. Um, you know, it certainly has some colorful facts to it, but the fact is, it's just an extreme example of a common problem here in New York State. Almost all school districts in New York State elect their school board members at large, which means that every person in the district votes for every member of the Board of Education. And in a lot of school districts, um, you know, it's really common that the electorate is a lot wider than the public school student population. And so, you know, we see, frankly, white people voting as a block, choosing the school board members, and sometimes outvoting the preferences of voters of color. And we saw this in a really prolonged way um, in East Ramapo. And so we sued under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The remedy was to impose a, a single member district system so that the nine members of the Board of Education are elected by neighborhood rather than uh, just by the entire district as a whole. Uh, the district tried to block that remedy. Uh, they were unsuccessful so far. Um, so there should be a special election on February 2nd, but uh, because the district is, is relentless, they on uh, just a couple days ago on December 23rd at 6 p.m. decided to file another motion to stay the special election. Um, and so we have, to, we have to deal with that right now. And, uh, and it's obnoxious because the fact is they're spending taxpayer money to try and deprive Black and Latinx voters of an equal opportunity to participate in the political process, when frankly, they should just be getting down to the business of implementing a lawful election system and spending money where it should be spent, which is educating kids in the damn public schools. Um, so that's where we are right now. We're hoping to take the lessons we've learned from East Ramapo though, and use it to make school district elections more equitable everywhere. And not just school district elections, but local government elections, just to make sure that we're not disenfranchising people, to make sure that particularly in our local government elections, um, that people are participating because those are the elections that we overlook the most, but actually end up being some of the most important because they provide the primary services that we interact with every day. 
whether it's police and fire and education, sanitation, transportation, parks. So, um, you know, when we talk about the New York Voting Rights Act in a little bit, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act of New York, you know, a lot of what's in there comes out of the lessons of other states. A lot of it comes out of the lessons of East Ramapo and, and researching, you know, what we see um, statewide, including, you know, our, our, our interactions with commissioners, right? You talked about how good it is to work with advocates and you're absolutely right. It is great for advocates to work with commissioners because, you know, we have a lot of very lofty ideas about what voting should be like. But the fact is, we've got to work with the people who actually make the election system run to make sure that practically speaking, you know, that our lofty goals are able to be implemented in a way that makes sense. So um, I hope we're all pulling in the right direction there. Uh, and I certainly feel like we are. Yeah, um, and I have two questions about uh, East Ramapo because uh, I said it wrong again. I'm just not gonna get it right. I've just decided I'm not gonna get it right. But um, okay. but my, my first question is more of a process question. Once you won the remedy uh, to go from at-large um, uh, seating to district seating, who drew those district lines? So the way that worked is um, the district got the first chance to propose a remedy and they proposed a remedy that actually wouldn't have remedied the violation at all. So, you know, we were able to demonstrate that that's not in fact correct. And we proposed our own map, uh, which did remedy the violation or will remedy the violation. And so the district ultimately uh, compromised and rather than make the court decide between the two maps, we were able to put forward a, a joint map. Um, and so, you know, I'd say that our, our demographer drew the map with input from um, from the district and um, and that's and that's where we are. I, it's just something that I, I didn't know how that remedy came about. And I, I wanted to ask because obviously if this translates to future school districts, right? I mean, is this something that, because that's my next question. Is this something that it can be uh, you know, translated as a whole to all school districts, or is this something still on a on a case by case basis? Because you su you sued on racial lines, right? Uh, you know, so um, obviously some suburban and rural school districts are more homogenous, anyways. Although getting less and less every day, but uh, uh, still, some of the school districts might not be. Uh, part of that, but like the Syracuse City School District, which is a seven-person at-large uh, membership, although there are, um, you know, people of color on the school board, uh, and, it, and it's pretty well uh, interspersed uh, geographically right now. <laughs> but I remember sometimes in the past that everybody were white people from the east side that got onto the school board, and uh, and there was a lot of talk about coming up with districts, but they couldn't do it. So is this something that, um, you know, that you think could uh, be implemented by other school districts as well? Or, or, or what, how, how feasible is it other places? Sure, so it's, it's feasible a lot of places, but the, but the point I really wanna make is there are different solutions that are gonna produce equitable results in, in, in a variety of places. So. A, a single member district system is going to make sense where you have 
high levels of residential racial segregation and, and, and lots of racially polarized voting, right? Um, that way, when you divide the districts down, you make sure that the you know people of color are able to you know have a majority in certain districts in order to, to, to elect some of their candidates of choice to the board, where in that large system they might not be able to elect any. But you also have districts where um, and, and a good example, there's some districts out on Long Island where the school district is not contiguous with any one municipality, right? It may encompass three or four separate municipalities. And so the, um, the minority populations are really spread out. Um, and in a system like that, drawing districts might not remedy the, the lack of equity. But there are other things we can do. And there are places, things that we can do to, um, to have more equity, and not just racial equity, but you know, equity uh, along a variety of different lines um, through modified at-large systems. When I say modified at-large, I mean things like cumulative voting. Um, cumulative voting means, you know, let's say you're voting for three seats on the school board. Um, you don't have to cast one vote for each seat. You get three votes and you can allocate them however you want. So if all of the black voters in the district want to focus on a black candidate, um, just to simplify things, they can put all three votes for that one candidate instead of having to vote for every seat. And then sometimes you've got limited voting and limited voting says, we're going to give each, um, we're going to give each voter two votes when there's three seats. Um, and that, and that has a similar uh, principle. It allows, you know, again, minorities to sort of focus their votes on certain candidates. And then ranked choice voting, which is, um, you know, making its debut in New York City. Uh, that's another sort of modified at-large system. So there are different ways to do this. And school districts might find um, these modified systems to produce, um, you know, better, fairer results and, and, and increase political participation. So, um, you know, drawing districts, um, you know, when you take the politics out of it is actually pretty easy. You can open up a software program called Maptitude and have a, a map done in 10, 15 minutes. Um, you know, the politics make map drawing as complicated as it is. So it's not necessarily something I would recommend for every school district in the state, but it's going to solve some problems, some places, and other places love other solutions. And, um, you know, when we get more into the guts of the, of the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, you know, you'll see that when it comes to local governments, it really recognizes that one size does not fit all. Um, and that there, there may be a variety of remedies um, that, that, are, that are better off in different, in different political environments. We're gonna to get to the John R. Lewis, I, I promise, but we actually have a good segue into the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about is the apportionment case that you're involved with with the United States Census. Because it, as people know, the, the census data is due any day now, it's, uh, it's supposed to, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I think it got delayed till March, uh, um, well, it's supposed to be given to the president sometime in the next couple of weeks, but you, we can get into that. But but what you're involved in is the citizenship question. And this is where uh, the Trump administration is trying to um, say that the only, uh, only people who count in the apportionment question are United States citizens uh, and not uh, 
anybody else. Let me, yeah, let me, let me, um, let me help you out just a little bit. So there's, there's two, two, two cases. I worked on both of them. The first was the citizenship question case, which was resolved a year ago, which kept a citizenship question off of the 2020 decennial census questionnaire. And then the second case, the one which, which we just got a decision on, or kind of a non-decision from the Supreme Court, um, was it a week ago, two weeks ago now? It was pretty recent, um, is about this memo that the president issued on July 21st, right in the middle of the census, in which he said that undocumented immigrants should be excluded from apportionment solely on the basis of their lawful um, their lawful status um, or unlawful status, I suppose. And, you know, in, in, in his memo, he made pretty clear that this was um, politically motivated. He wanted to punish states that he perceived uh, as being hospitable to undocumented immigrants. He thought they shouldn't be rewarded for policies um, that attract undocumented immigrants. I don't think of Texas, frankly, as being a state that is terribly hospitable, uh, or at least having a government that is terribly hospitable to undocumented immigrants. But you know, that's that's who suffers. And and in the in the memo, he specifically targeted California, said that if he excluded all undocumented immigrants, California might lose two or three congressional seats. Who knows? Um, so anyway, we we the ACLU. Um, we sued, and then the state of New York and uh, 18 other states also sued, and we worked closely with the New York Attorney General's office. They were, uh, and continue to be really great partners in all this, um, you know, because New York would be hurt by this. And, you know, we are, we are a diverse state. Um, obviously, we have undocumented immigrants here in New York. Um, they are frequently part of mixed status households. You know, a lot of them have been here 10, 15, 20 or more years and have US citizen children. Um, you know, they're, they're part of the fabric of our community. They, 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 they work here, they pay taxes here, they're community leaders, um, their kids go to school here, they're our friends, they're our neighbors. I, I thought my colleague Dale really summed it up well um, in front of the, the US Supreme Court when, when, he, when he mentioned all that. And so, you know, we, we and, and, and the states went to bat and we won in front of the, uh, a three judge panel at the district court and for esoteric legal reasons, um, cases about apportionment, instead of being heard by one judge at the trial court level are heard by three judges. And then there's a direct right of appeal to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court cannot refuse to hear an appeal from a three judge district court. So this went unusually fast from complaint to resolution by the Supreme Court. That can usually take years and years and years. In this case, we filed our complaint, I think on uh, July 28th. I think the Supreme Court had its decision, um, you know, in, in, in December or, or, you know, the end of November, which is lightning fast. Anyway, so the, there were also cases in California and in Maryland and in DC and every judge to get to the merits, said, "Look, this is illegal. It may be unconstitutional. Um, you know, the, the the Constitution says we count the whole number of persons in each state. It doesn't say we count the whole number of voters. It doesn't say we count the whole number of citizens. Uh, it doesn't say we count the the whole number of lawfully present people. It says the whole number of persons. And so, um, 
you know, the, the, the judges were all very clear on that. Um, and there was an injunction issued on September 10th. Uh, that was important because the, the, the census was still going on. And we were afraid and our expert testimony showed that if this memo was in place, it would have um, chilled people from, from responding to the census, which would hurt the amount of federal funding that New York gets, hurt the number of congressional seats. But by the time this case got to the Supreme Court, the census was over. And so the Supreme Court said, well, you know, we don't really know how this is going to affect apportionment yet because the apportionment hasn't happened. So, you know, we're going to vacate the case for now and let's see what happens because we don't know if the memorandum is going to be implemented at all. We don't know if it's going to be implemented, how much it's going to be implemented. There have been reports coming out that the Census Bureau might not have numbers until the end of January, at which point President Biden may just rescind the memorandum altogether. I would hope that he does. It's a terrible memorandum. Um, so that's where we are right now, is waiting to see, technically speaking, the Secretary of Commerce's report to the president is due on December 31st, uh, Thursday. <laughs> so well, well, when, when, when this is airing, Hopefully they'll be uh, they'll be uh, transmitting it. Well, that's right. That's right. So um, we don't know if the secretary is able to make that report. If he does, and if it reflects that memorandum, we're going to have to go back into court and sue him all over again. But if the reports about the Census Bureau not being able to to, to provide those numbers until after the inauguration, we may never have to go to court. So that's where we are right now. Like I said, every judge to pass on the question recognized, including in oral argument, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, who are sort of no famous bleeding heart liberals, were both pretty clear. You can't exclude somebody who has been living in the United States for 20 years just because they might have come undocumented. Um, that's not what the historical test is. The historical test is, is this person a usual resident of the United States? Um, so we're waiting to see how that all shakes out. So I'm gonna leave my witness here a little bit, but to why is that, right? Like why, I think the, you know, the lay person would say, well, of course we'd only wanna count citizens. It, we're, reapportionment only deals with the number of congressional districts. And so you would only wanna have the, the same number of citizens in the district, but, Reapportionment isn't just about congressional districts, right? It, it's about resources. So, the, so, so uh, you're mostly right. The census is all about everything, right? The right. census is about resources. It's about political power. Uh, it's about all those things. Um, you know, we start with the Constitution. The Constitution says we count all persons. Now, the constitutional text originally excluded um, Indians not taxed. That was that category doesn't really exist anymore. And very famously and, 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 and uh, notoriously only counted enslaved persons as three fifths of a person, right? We've, we've done away with that, thank God. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the history is very clear that we count all persons. And there's a lot of good reasons for that, right? Um, you know, states have to provide, you know, have, to, have to govern, have to provide services based on everybody who lives here. Um, it's not just about the citizens. And we are a nation of immigrants. We have had people, non-citizens living here forever. And so 
you know, we don't exclude them as part of the body politic. We don't exclude them as part of the responsibility of, of government. And so, um, you know, we've never um, excluded non-citizens from the count. We've never excluded people on the basis of their immigration status, going all the way back to the first census in 1790. Every once in a while, it's been brought up, you know, oh, we should exclude non-citizens, we should exclude undocumented immigrants. It's been shot down every single time. Doesn't matter which administration, doesn't matter which branch of government, people of all parties and in all branches of government have recognized that the census counts everybody and congressional apportionment needs to be based on everybody. And it's just important to, to, to the way our government functions. We have to have a government that serves everybody, regardless of whether you want them here or not. There are plenty of people who are US citizens I would prefer are not here sometimes. I'm related to some of them. No, I like all my relatives. But um, you know, whether we want somebody here or not is not a basis for excluding them um, from this important calculation. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is uh, we've been focusing on this podcast on upcoming changes to New York State election law, uh, how the changes that we've had has, has have they worked and whether uh, we're going to amplify those. And a lot of people have come on the podcast talking about early voting, talking about mail-in ballots, but there's a big piece of legislation that is being talked about and uh, that could be transformative to New York politics. And that's the John R. Lewis uh, New York Voting Rights Act. And that's something that you uh, were, uh, you know, uh, heavily involved in the, uh, in the formation of. I testified on its behalf uh, back in 2000 or back in earlier this year when uh, we actually had in-person testimony uh, and it was seems quaint now pre-COVID days. Uh, but uh, what, uh, what is the New York, uh, John R. Lewis New York Voting Rights Act and, and why do we need it here in New York? Or why, why is this not a national only issue? Sure, so the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act finds its roots in the Voting Rights Act that have been influential and really effective in other places, including the Federal Voting Rights Act, as well as the California and Washington Voting Rights Act. But it's really designed to innovate in order to take on a lot of the problems we've seen in New York elections and to make New York a national leader when it comes to access to the franchise, making sure that we have the best data-driven election system available, that it's available to, uh, to everybody who wants to be able to cast a ballot. Um, and that we are making sure that we're providing an equitable system all the time, because we do have an unfortunate history of inequity um, and of hostility to the voter uh, here in New York. And so, like I said, we are trying to draw off some of the best things that have occurred elsewhere, build on them, make them better here, and, and become a national model that we can export out to other states instead of us having to follow the lead of other places like we do so often. So if you look at, at, at the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act of New York, and there are really seven sections to it, each one tackles a specific problem that we're seeing in, in New York State. So um, just to sort of very quickly walk through some of them. In the first section, it talks about interpreting the election law in a way that favors the voter and make sure that votes are counted. Because too often in New York, we have had votes thrown out for reasons um, 
that, that, that they shouldn't have been, that we can verify the voters' eligibility. Um, we should be opening that vote up and counting it. And um, too often there's been interference uh, frequently by candidates and parties, sometimes by um, you know commissioners that have been hostile to the vote, sometimes by judges who may not be as well versed in the election laws they should be. This makes sure that everybody knows that the election law is designed to make sure that the votes of eligible New Yorkers get counted. It also uh, has a canon of interpretation that makes sure that we're favoring equity so that when we have things like an early voting site plan, that we're designing that plan with, a way, with an eye towards making sure that everybody has access to it, particularly that we are providing um, equitable access to historically marginalized groups. Um, so that's, that's all in section one. Section two um, really draws off of other states in the Federal Voting Rights Act in order to make sure that we are fighting vote suppression and vote dilution. And they really do exist here in New York as well. The East Ravenpo case is, is one that we've talked about here. Um, certainly we have a history of racial gerrymandering in this state. We also have a history of partisan gerrymandering in this state. Those are forms of vote dilution. Um, you know, when it comes to vote suppression, we see things like, you know, bad polling place plans, off-cycle elections, um, you know, unnecessary registration requirements, um, you know, things that make it harder for eligible New Yorkers, people who should be registered and voting, to be registered and voting. Um, and so this provides a specific state cause of action uh, to fight those, those evils. Uh, in a way that should be, you know, a little more streamlined and less expensive and exhausting than, than the way the federal courts do it. Um, section three is about uh, language access and making sure, uh, section, yeah, it's about language access and making sure that we are providing more, more access because we have such great language diversity in New York State and, and typically language minorities have um, voted less often than, than other groups. And we wanna make sure that nobody is excluded from the electorate because they happen to speak a language other than English as their first language. Um, and this is one that I, that I, I think is, is really for the wonks out there, for the data nerds. But section four is about data. And, and hopefully this is the provision I'm actually secretly most excited about. What it does is it, is it creates a central repository of election and demographic data so that we're able to make the best possible data-driven evidence-based decisions when it comes to you know, designing our site plans, designing our elections communications, um, making sure that we're providing enough hours of early voting, that they're the right hours of early voting, the right days. Um, and so basically we create a central data repository uh, where, where all of the boards of elections would send their data, where all of the jurisdictions that run uh, elections, because unfortunately we have a lot of jurisdictions in New York State who run their own elections, separate from the professional election administrators that we have at the Board of Elections. I could talk about that all day. It is ridiculous for us, for every county to have a set of professional election administrators and then to have a whole bunch of jurisdictions that don't use their expertise. But anyway, so that section four is making sure that we have all that data available. Um, and I hope that's actually a section that, that excites our election commissioners. Rather than, I know. I'm a, I'm a you, are, you are one of our, 
You were one of our data nerds, Dustin. Um, sec section five is, is really a big and important thing. You, you might've heard about a case called Shelby County and a phenomenon called preclearance. And that was really the crown jewel of the Voting Rights Act. It's been called the single most effective civil rights law in history. And what this would do is rather than forcing voters to go out and sue jurisdictions where there's racially discriminatory changes to the election law, instead it forces jurisdictions to um, provide information about the changes that they're making to the attorney general who can review them and see whether those uh, those changes make minorities worse off. So the, um, the easiest example would be, let's say a jurisdiction wants to move uh, polling places. You can put together a very simple one page submission. We are moving our polling place from one main street to one to, to 100 main street. It's gonna have no effect because here's how it lines up with the public transportation, et cetera, et cetera. And the attorney general can sign off on that. Nobody has to sue over it. And it forces election administrators to think in terms of equity when they're designing these changes to the election laws. Um, you know, a more complicated one might be a redistricting plan. If the, uh, the city of New York designs a new city council plan, it would get submitted to the attorney general uh, with a submission showing why this is an equitable redistricting plan. If it's not, the attorney general can block it, send it back and say, no, here's where the problems are. You need to fix those. And where, um, where, where it works, the attorney general can sign off on it. And, um, and again, it forces the people who are making these changes to think about, well, how do we make sure that our change doesn't get blocked? How do we make sure that we're thinking equitably? And over time, the strong hope is that um, this makes everybody think about how we run elections in, in New York with more of an eye towards equity. It should reduce the amount of litigation, um, which is expensive and time consuming um, and should streamline things. And then the, the sort of the last substantive piece is it's, it's a cause of action against voter intimidation, voter uh, deception and voter obstruction, right? Because we've seen a lot of different ways in which the right to vote is interfered with in, in that sort of visceral way, whether people are going to the polls or getting information about how to send in their ballots. Um, you know, it's rarely people beating folks up at the polls, right? That's certainly a paradigmatic example of voter intimidation. But so much of what we see now is, is voter deception, whether it's misleading robocalls about when and how you vote um, or voter obstruction, where we see um, you know, people blocking the, 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 the roads to a polling place with all kinds of demonstrations in a way that doesn't let voters get online. Um, you know, it's, it's those sort of different things that, that we wanna make sure that, that nobody is obstructed from actually getting to the polls or registering to vote. So what, where do you think that this stands? Now, I know that we were pretty hopeful that, uh, you know, some more uh, discussion would happen in the Senate before COVID hit. Uh, and then of course, you know, all discussion was just how do we get through today last year? And that was pretty much the end of uh, major reforms last year. But with, um, you know, a lot of reforms coming probably uh, in the early session with uh, vote uh, by mail being more prominent in voters' minds. 
uh, and uh, a couple of constitutional amendments on this. Do you, I, I've, I've seen senators talking about this. Do you think that there is a, and I, I know uh, Charles Levine, uh, who's the assembly elections law chair was on my program uh, just last week and he was talking about this. So it seems like it's picked up a, a little momentum. Uh, where, where do you, where, when do you think that this might actually get introduced and, and it will, is this a this session thing or is it still aspirational? I think it is a this session thing. So it was actually introduced for the first time in January, uh, toward the end of January. And that hearing you were talking about took place on March 3rd, right? And so if we all remember, you know, probably, um, you know, you remember that I think, I think March 12th, March 13th was sort of the last day where, where things were open and, and whatnot. Um, so this was, this was a, it really disrupted the conversation that we were having, but the law is still picked up steam. I think right now, I'm not sure if we have 23 or 24 co-sponsors in the Senate, right? 32 is a majority of senators. So we're already in a good place there. The bill just picked up an assembly sponsor. I want to say it was in June or July. So it's pretty recent. And so I'm glad to hear that assembly member Levine is, uh, is talking about it. Certainly he's an important part of getting these things moving as, as chair of the assembly elections committee. Um, so, you know, we've got to do our education work to make sure that assembly members know about it, that they're signing on as co-sponsors. So um, I think it's really gotten around in the Senate. I think it's, it's found a lot of support, which I, I'm extremely enthused about. I think we've got to, you know, start building enthusiasm on the assembly side, but there's no reason why it shouldn't pass this session. Um, you know, I think it's a timely topic. Um, and, and, and again, I think we've done made so much progress in the last two uh, terms to improve New York elections. I think this term is going to be another big term for making elections better. And, and this is an important part of that. So what else um, do you think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up uh, after this, but uh, what, what other um, reforms are you looking at? Uh, is NYCLU or you as Perry citizen uh, looking to see New York improve on? Uh, you know, you, we obviously um, the constitutional amendments for same day uh, voter registration and no fault absentees are going to probably be on the ballot. Um, <clears throat> and uh, when I had uh, Senator Giannaris on, he talked about uh, expanding early voting and uh, you know, Assemblymember Levine uh, talked about that as well, but but a lot of it came down to how do we make the vote by mail system better in New York? What what are you what are you hoping besides the John R. Lewis voting yet right act, which is a big donut to chew on right, right at the beginning? But what else are you looking at uh, uh, supporting or uh, asking uh, New York legis legislations to do? Sure. So certainly the constitutional amendments along with the constitutional amendments, very interested in the implementing legislation because you know what those constitutional amendments will do is pave the way for us to set up a system, but those constitutional amendments don't set up the system in their own right. So if the constitutional amendment that Senator Giannaris is sponsoring around um, you know, same day registration passes, 
What that really does is take a restriction in the New York Constitution that you have to be registered 10 days before an election. It takes that out and it lets us set up a system of same day registration. So making sure that we have a system ready to go, because I don't want anyone to think that <coughs> we're going to pass this system and all of a sudden magically we're going to have same day registration. We've got to make sure we got the procedures ready to in fact do that. So seeing those, those procedures go through uh, is really important to me. One thing that, that, that is uh, tangential, not tangential, it's, it's central, but it's a little bit different than what we've talked about so far is re-enfranchisement for people involved with the criminal legal system. Um, you know, it's, it's been a priority for a long time. I am really hoping that we see it passed. Um, you know, in, in May 2018, Governor Cuomo issued an executive order saying that, you know, they would grant pardons to every person on parole so that they'd be able to vote. And I appreciate the executive order, but there's so much uncertainty around it because it's not automatic upon release. People don't know if they've received a pardon, when they've received a pardon. Do they need a pardon if they're on probation instead of parole? And so there are so many folks who should be registered in voting who don't know they should be registered in voting because we are doing this, this um, cumbersome system. We should recognize right now that restoration is automatic upon release and, um, and just get that system going from there. That, that's critical is getting, getting that bill passed. It's a small thing. Um, but it really is very important. And, you know, obviously NICLU and, and, and me personally, we both care a lot about not using disenfranchisement as a penalty. It's not a good penalty. Um, you know, it, it has no, it, it doesn't rehabilitate people to take their voting rights away. It has no penological justification whatsoever. All it does is it alienates folks and make them second-class citizens when we should be focused on Look, even if you've made a mistake that's putting you in the criminal legal system, we have a vested interest in making sure that you are staying active and engaged and being a good citizen, notwithstanding whatever you've done to get involved uh, in the first place. So, um, you know, ultimately, total reenfranchisement is an important thing, making sure that nobody ever loses their voting rights which is the law in Maine, it's the law in Vermont, it's the law in DC, it should be the law in New York. But right now, the first step is just making restoration automatic upon a person's release from incarceration. Um, you know, and, and it's funny, uh, you know, th this is actually something that, um, you know, I try to talk to my elections commissioners about all the time is like, sometimes reforms like this actually save us work. Because right now we have to, this, this pardon uh, system, it, you know, the governor's office makes it work pretty timely. It comes out every every month, but it's still another uh, layer of administration that we have to process. Whereas if it was automatic, we would only have to process the voter registration form and that would be it. Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope we've learned a lot of things from this last election cycle. Not the least of which is that elections are incredibly important they're hard to run and they're run by a lot of very dedicated professionals of both parties. And so one, let's, let's thank our election officials and I'll start by thanking you. Um, but, but also when, when we are trying to reform our election system, you know, let's think about what makes sense. What is simple? Um, you know, what is going to make this machine 
work more smoothly to make sure that more people have access to the vote, that more votes get counted, that they get counted accurately and completely and efficiently. Um, you know, I one of the things that made me a little bit unsettled coming out of this election cycle was people very concerned that we should count votes much, much faster in New York. We should count votes faster in New York, but I don't want to count votes faster at the sacrifice of every vote being counted and every voter being able to, to cast their ballot. So, you know, there are certainly things that we can do to streamline the process and, and make sure that we're counting sooner, that we're counting more efficiently, that candidates and parties are not interfering with the work of election administrators in counting those ballots. Um, I mean, frankly, if there's a thing that we haven't talked about that I would really like to see change, it is the abuse of the challenge process <laughs> to interfere with the work of elections commissioners in counting votes. I don't think people understand how egregious this is. A, a paper ballot will come in the door. It'll be reviewed by a bipartisan team at the Board of Elections. They will determine that that voter is eligible to vote and their vote should be opened and, and put through the machine. And a candidate, or their lawyer rather, will say, nope, we challenge that. What a ridiculous idea. The Board of Elections has already determined that that's an eligible voter who cast a ballot that we can count. Who are these people who think they should be able to disenfranchise qualified New York voters that, that commissioners or, or, or officials of both parties have agreed upon? And what that did this cycle is it dragged things out by weeks, by weeks. And it led to this ridiculous process that we're seeing up in, in, in the 22nd Congressional District where, you know, who can find which challenge to what and these sticky notes and, 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 and they're gonna be counting votes for a second time well into January. You know, there's a lot of criticism that election administrators get. Some of it is warranted. Some of those elections were not well handled. But the fact is we have a system that was ripe for abuse by candidates and, and by their lawyers. And they abused it to the hilt this election in a way that really delayed um, the efficient counting of ballots. So I would like to see that addressed. I would like to see that ridiculous challenge process done away with. The only challenges that anyone should be allowed is that if the Board of Elections determines that a ballot should not be counted, that voter should have an opportunity to come in and say, wait, here's why you should count my ballot. To me, that's the only logical reason uh, to have any post-election process at all. I agree with that. We we obviously were it seemed like we were at the uh, tip of that storm uh, in uh, the SD50 race, and then uh, that got played out across the whole state and in New York 22. And it also got played out to a point where it was not. Uh, it didn't actually do anything. It, it, like all of this challenging, no, no no race was changed, no lead was changed, except for maybe in New York 22. But at the end of the day, the courts tend to lean towards counting these votes. It just seemed like it was just a, a way for billable hours to be charged. <laughs> but uh, it was it was a way for it was a way for lawyers who were concerned that their candidates were not going to have votes to take wild swings at knocking out the votes of qualified voters. 
You know, it was just a roll of the dice and it was a bad roll of the dice and it took up time and it took up money and it had threatened the dignity of people's votes. It threatened the health of some people at the Board of Elections as, as you unfortunately saw firsthand. And so, um, you know, I think those lawyers should be held accountable for what they did. And I think we should make sure that those kinds of abuses can't happen anymore. Well, you know, and I, I'll, I can say this now that we're by the election, um, you know, voters need to hold people accountable too. You know, this is, people say, oh, well, it was the lawyers who did it, not the candidates. Well, the, the candidates are represented by the lawyers. And, and just like, um, you know, an elected official, their staff might be some, you know, if something happens with their staff that they allow, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're responsible as well. I mean, these lawyers are working on behalf of candidates and we need to, uh, take that into account the next time uh, they come and ask for our vote, do they actually cherish our votes? You know, that that's something that I've been trying to point out. And, I, and I've actually been heartened by the reaction to the challenges, both in the media and in the local uh, public. There was a visceral reaction to people getting their votes uh, challenged. And I think uh, there, that will be in the minds of people who try to do that again, though I think it should be the law should be changed so they can't. <laughs> so, well, Perry, um, as always, pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I hope that at some point I'll see you again in uh, the LOB, uh, walking the hallways and, 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 and testifying uh, on behalf of stuff, but I'll be happy to testify on behalf of Zoom uh, on, uh, with you as well. So, um, but, uh, uh, is there uh, anything, um, you know, anything else you'd like to share before we uh, sign off here? No, just that I'm really glad that, uh, that that you do this. I think this is such a public service. I think it's great to keep people informed of these issues. Um, you know, sometimes I know when 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 we're sitting around, um, you know, the people who are really doing this inside baseball, um, you know, we, we wonder if the public, uh, how they'd feel if they knew this stuff. And this really gives them a chance to get inside and talk about the inside baseball of legislation and election administration. Um, and I think it just shows a, a really healthy respect for the public and their intellectual curiosity for you to do this. So I'm glad you do it. And thank you for having me on again. Well, thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we will be doing this again. Uh, um, this is gonna air on New Year's Eve. And so the next time uh, we're here, we'll be talking in 2021 and. Thank God 2020 is over, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean 2021 won't be challenging as well. Uh, and I'll be sitting down with the newly elected president of the Syracuse NAACP, uh, Colette Matthews Carter. Um, she'll be uh, talking to me on this Sunday on uh, January 3rd. Uh, so check that out. Um, and uh, I hope uh, to see you then. Uh, I hope to see all of you stay safe, wear a mask, the virus numbers are still continuing to tick up. We expected that it's going to be a dark winter. And while the vaccine's on its way, um, it's coming slower than it should. And uh, we probably have a lot of waiting until the federal government is as reactive as we'd like it to be. Uh, so uh, we have to do the best we can to protect our neighbors, protect our loved ones, stay home, wear a mask, and be safe. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
I get no 